Well, this past summer, a year ago, August 22, uh, came across an article in the Associated Press that I thought was very fascinating, a story that I've been following the last uh, year. And uh, it was a story about a man in Canada who was euthanized this past fall, euthanized, legally put to death by his doctor uh, at his request because he was suffering from hearing loss. Hearing loss. You can see his death certificate there at the top. Medical diagnosis relevant to request for medical assistance in dying. Hearing loss. Here's the story from Toronto. Alan Nichols had a history of depression and other medical issues, but none were life-threatening. When the 61-year-old Canadian was hospitalized in June of 2019 over fears he might be suicidal, he asked his brother to bust him out as soon as possible. Within a month, Nichols submitted a request to be euthanized, and he was killed, despite concerns raised by his family and a nurse practitioner. His application for, for euthanasia listed only one health condition as the reason for his request to die, hearing loss. Nichols' family reported the case to police and health authorities, arguing that he lacked the capacity to understand the process and was not suffering unbearably among the requirements for euthanasia. They say he was not taking needed medication, wasn't using the cochlear implant that helped him hear, and that hospital staffers improperly helped him request euthanasia. Allen was basically put to death, his brother Gary Nichols said. Disability experts say the story is not unique in Canada, which arguably has the world's most permissive euthanasia rules, allowing people with serious disabilities to choose to be killed in the absence of any other medical issue. Many Canadians support euthanasia, and the advocacy group Dying with Dignity says the procedure is driven by compassion, an end to suffering and discrimination and desire for personal autonomy. But human rights advocates say the country's regulations lack necessary safeguards, devalue the lives of disabled people, and are prompting doctors and health workers to suggest the procedure to those who might not otherwise consider it. Equally troubling advocates say are instances in which people have sought to be killed because they weren't getting adequate government support to live. Canada is set to expand euthanasia access next year, but these advocates say the system warrants further scrutiny now. You know, friends, as I thought about that article, I, I just wondered to myself, how does a culture get to the point where things like hearing loss and physical disabilities or not getting enough in welfare are considered reasonable justifications for having the state put an end to a person's life. For Canada, they came to this conclusion by following a humanistic philosophy known as utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is a philosophy de developed in the 18th century by a man named Jeremy Bentham and then expanded upon in the 19th century by another philosopher by the name of John Stuart Mill. But utilitarianism is the idea that the moral good in life for the individual is to experience the greatest amount of pleasure 
And the moral good for society is to make decisions that will produce and foster the greatest amount of good for the greatest number of people. This is the utilitarian philosophy. That life is relevant if it produces pleasure. And when it comes to social decisions, you choose the path that produces the greater good for the greatest number of people. But friends, is life simply a matter of utilitarian ethics? A question of the greater good. And if so, here's what I consider the most significant question. Who gets to decide what the greater good is? Doctors? Insurance companies? The government? What if those people are misguided? What if they're misinformed? Or what if they're just plain evil? Like Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Or the Chinese Communist Party of today. See, friends, this is why the issue of the fundamental dignity of human life matters. And it's why all human life should be valued, championed, and defended. The value of human life is not based upon any person's or institution's assessment of it, but solely upon the unique status conveyed upon all of us by our creator God. This is the view of human life that's been at the core of Christian philosophy and the Christian worldview for 2,000 years. It's a worldview informed by God's absolute truth given to us in Scripture and conveyed to us in God's moral law for humanity. We've been looking at God's moral law for humanity this summer in our study of the Ten Ten Commandments, a series called The Ten Great Freedoms. As we've talked about over the past few weeks, these are God's moral laws rooted in his nature and character, his moral will for humanity, how he desires us to live. And in these Ten Commandments, these Ten Great Freedoms, we find our obligations to our creator and our obligations to our fellow man. And remember, Jesus echoed the intent of the the Ten Commandments by giving us the two greatest commandments, love God and love others. And so we see that in the Ten Commandments. How do we love God? How do we love others? Well, this is spelled out for us here in God's moral law in these Ten Commandments. And one of the freedoms that we discover in the Ten Commandments is found in the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment, which we're going to be looking at this morning. Freedom from grave error. Freedom from grave error. Let's take a look this morning at this commandment and then spend some time considering its application for our lives. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. One of the shortest verses in the Bible, one of the shortest of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. My family was asking me earlier this week, you know, Dad, what are you preaching on? My, my daughter asked me, Dad, what are you preaching on this Sunday? I said, the sixth commandment. She said, what's that? I said, you shall not murder. She says, oh, that's easy enough. <laughs> well, you would think so, right? 
She, she, she said, you know, what, what are you going to say about that? I mean, just tell people don't murder, pray, and we'll go home. <laughs> and you would think it would be that easy. But the reality is, in this short command, we find some incredible theological implications for us to consider. God tells us, you shall not murder. The, the words there in the Hebrew, it's even shorter in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it's actually just two words. Lo ratzak. Lo is the negation, non or no, and ratzak is the word for murder. Now, friends, notice the word here is murder, not kill. Some of you who maybe memorized the Ten Commandments as a child maybe is more, are more familiar with the, the old King James Version, thou shalt not kill. Okay? But that's not an appropriate translation of the original Hebrew. The original Hebrew says, you shall not murder, or thou shall not murder. There are eight different words for killing in the Hebrew language. And God chose this word very specifically, ratzak, murder. He had a very intentional reason for choosing this word. And ratzak, understand this friends, is never used in reference to hunting animals. Okay, so you hunters out there, you're off, you're off the hook this morning. Okay, this word ratzak is never used in reference to self-defense. Ratzak is never used in reference to capital punishment. And ratzak is never used scripturally in reference to a just war. In other words, none of those things are considered violations of the sixth commandment. What the sixth commandment does prohibit, however, is the unlawful killing of an innocent human life. The unlawful killing of an innocent human life. You shall not murder. The Bible applies this law in four different ways. The sixth commandment we see in Scripture prohibits four things. Number one, it prohibits plainly murder. And here we're talking about premeditated murder, the taking of another human life. Deuteronomy 19, 11 through 13 expands on this law. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and flees into one of these cities, these cities of refuge that God provided for the Israelites, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. So God forbids premeditated murder. It was against his will for humanity. Ratzak, you shall not murder, is also applied biblically to voluntary manslaughter. Okay, voluntary manslaughter. For example, Exodus 21, 12 through 14. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will point for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Now here, God makes a distinction in Old Testament law between premeditated murder and voluntary manslaughter. What is voluntary manslaughter? This would be a situation, let's say, where you didn't intend to kill somebody, but you, maybe you get in a fight with your neighbor for whatever reason. He, your dog, his dog is pooping on your yard and you've just had it and you're over there yelling at your neighbor and all of a sudden it goes to fists, right? And you hit your neighbor and knock him out and he lands and hits his head on a rock and dies. Okay, that's voluntary manslaughter. You intended to harm him. You didn't intend to kill him. 
But the sixth commandment prohibits voluntary manslaughter. The sixth commandment also prohibits involuntary manslaughter. The accidental taking of another human's life. Deuteronomy 19, 4 through 5 says this. This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. Again, speaking of these cities of refuge God provided. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he may die, he may flee to one of these cities and live. So this was the situation of involuntary manslaughter. There was no intent to kill, but there was some type of negligence that took place that brought about the killing of another innocent human being. And God says that this is a violation of his sixth commandment. You shall not murder. The sixth commandment is also applied biblically to negligent homicide. Negligent homicide, an example in scripture, Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet, that's a, that's a small fence that was around the tops of the roofs in the ancient world. You shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So this is a situation, your neighbor's over, you're having a party, you're up on the roof, you're watching the sunset, you're hanging out and all of a sudden your neighbor, whoops, falls off your roof because you didn't have a parapet, okay? This would be a situation, according to God's law, of negligent homicide. You should have had a fence there. You should have built a wall there for the sake of your neighbor's well-being. Now, here's the thing, friends. In each of these examples, the fundamental principle that God is communicating to his people is that they are to love their neighbors and care about their lives, Remember these Ten Commandments, they're all about our obligations, right? The moral law of God, our obligations to God and our obligations to others. And here in these four spelling out of the application of the Sixth Commandment, these, these four ways that he, God applies the Sixth Commandment, God says, look, it, 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 this isn't just about murder. It's about loving your neighbor and caring for their life and seeking to preserve their life because life is precious to God. And we see this throughout Scripture. And so God says to each of us, look, it's not only are, are you called to not murder, but you also have a duty to protect innocent human life. But the question we need to ask this morning is why? Why is life so precious to God? And the answer to that question takes us back again to the book of Genesis to the beginning, to the creation account, like so many of the other moral norms that we've studied this year, have their root and their origin in our creator God and his creative purposes and moral plans for our world. We see the value for human life begins all the way back in the beginning when God created. Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And again, remember the plural there is the triune Godhead speaking, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, 
He created him. Friends, here in these two verses, we find the basis for the sacred value of human life. Every human being is intrinsically valuable because they are created in the very image of God. Theologians call this doctrine the the doctrine of the imago Dei. It's It's a Latin term, imago Dei. It means image of God. In other words, every single one of you is imprinted with the image of your creator on your soul. We are not God. We are not divine. But every single one of us bears the stamp of our creator God. Human beings uniquely among all creation represent our creator's very nature and character here in this world. Although not in the same way, we share in certain attributes of God, we reflect his personal nature, and we experience and express his love. All of these things are unique to men and women. This is what separates us from the animal kingdom. Right? You're not simply an, an, an animal whose closest relatives swing from the trees and live in the zoos. No, God says you are a special and unique creation of God as male or female, and I have put my very imprint upon your soul. You are made in my image, God says. And this is why the unlawful killing of a human life demands justice in God's moral ordering of the world. Let's look again at the book of Genesis and see what God told Noah and his family as they reestablished his moral norms for the world following the great flood. Remember, God brought a flood upon the earth to to punish humanity for its great wickedness and evil. He preserved one family, the, the family of Noah, to repopulate the earth. After the flood was over and after Noah and his family leave the ark, God restates his law and his will to Noah and his family. And one of the things God tells Noah and his family, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Friends, here we find the biblical logic behind capital punishment. Human life is precious. It's made in God's image. And as such, God demands that it be honored. And when it isn't honored, justice must be served. Why? Because human life isn't cheap in God's economy. Life is valuable to God. It's precious to God. And we are not allowed to take it wrongfully. By the way, this doctrine of the Imago Dei, this is also the basis for God's allowance of killing and self-defense or situations of just war. We, We don't have time this morning to look at all the biblical references for these situations, but God allows for them. He allows for killing and self-defense. He allows for killing and just war. Why? Because the intrinsic value of human life doesn't just compel us to protect it, but also to preserve it. And sometimes in this broken and fallen world that we find ourselves in, things like self-defense and just war are necessary. 
These two are matters of justice based on the high premium God places on human life. John Calvin commenting on the sanctity of human life, he says this, our neighbor bears the image of God. To use him, abuse, or misuse him is to do violence to the person of God who images himself in every human soul. Life is precious to God because all of life is created in his image. And so the first thing that we see here in the sixth commandment is that this is a command for all times. It's a command for all times. God says you shall not unlawfully kill another human being. And this leads us to point number two this morning. Not only is this a command for all times, but it's also a command for our times. It's a command for today. We live today in what many have described as a culture of death. A culture where human dignity is devalued, life is cheap, and people are expendable. We see the reality of this culture of death today and the scientific experimentation on unborn human life, practices like embryonic stem cell research. We see it in the more than 63 million babies that have been aborted in our nation since 1973. We see it in the selling of aborted baby body parts for further scientific research. We see this culture of death in the cavalier way our media and entertainment industry glorifies violence and death. Do you know, friends, the American Psychological Association reports that by the time the average child finishes elementary school, they will have watched over 8,000 televised murders and 100,000 acts of on-screen violence. The American College of Forensic Psychology in a review of 1,000 different studies reported that more than 980 of these studies established a clear link between on-screen violence and violence in real life. We've seen the fruit of this in recent years and in the increasing violence in our schools, our classrooms, the, the horrific school shootings that we've seen in recent years. This culture of death can be seen today in the rampant lawlessness that we see around our nation. Within the past year, record homicide levels exploding in major cities around the country. We see this culture of death in the commodification of human life and the human trafficking industry, using people as drug mules, selling them as sexual slaves, killing them to harvest and sell their organs. We see this in the pursuit of lucrative medical technology, lacking proper and transparent safety measures. We see this in a government that last year spent one-sixth of our national budget on military expenditures, $877 billion. Now, friends, I'm a fan of our military and think military is important and necessary, but the very fact that we have to spend one-sixth of our annual budget only reaffirms the fact that we live in a culture of death, sadly. We live in a nation today where suicide is the number two cause of death among teenagers. Do you know that in the United States, the CDC reports that we average today 132 suicides per day in our country. We see this culture of death in the practice of so-called gender-affirming care. 
where healthy human bodies are mutilated and left sterile. We see it in the rampant drug abuse leading to over 100,000 overdose deaths in our nation this past year. We see it in the growing acceptance of physician suicide, which is now legal in 10 states in our country. And I could go on and on and on this morning about the culture of death that we find ourselves in. We are so immersed in this culture of death today that we have become numb to it. We have allowed the unthinkable to become our daily reality. But every once in a while, the shocking nature of our condition breaks through. Like during those horrific school shootings that we've seen on the news in recent years. And in these moments of cultural lucidity, people wonder, how did we get here? How did we get to this place where, where death is so prevalent and so normalized in our world that we often think little of it? Well, friends, God's word tells us how we got here. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1, 28 through 32 tells us how we got here. Paul says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Friends, we've talked about this already this summer. Our obligations and God's moral law for our lives, it begins with our vertical obligations to God. If we do not love and honor God, we cannot love and honor our neighbors. And because our culture no longer saw fit to acknowledge God, well, we should not expect anything different than the error of that to overflow into the results and the fruit that we see, the violence that we see in our culture. Paul says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This sure sounds like an assessment of our culture today, doesn't it, friends? This is where a culture of death comes from. When a people turn their back on God and his moral will for our lives, the fruit of that error is seen in a culture of hatred, a culture of ruthlessness, a culture of violence. Very interesting, Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, when his disciples asked him, Lord, what would be the sign of your second coming, the sign of the end of the age? One of the first signs that Jesus mentioned, he says, when, when my time is coming, the love of most will grow cold. The love of most will grow cold in society. And friends, we've seen that in recent days in an explosion of the devaluing of human life throughout our culture. Friends, the only hope for a culture of death is a radical reversal, a national revival of hearts, a change of course back to God and his moral will for our lives. And this is where we, as God's people, have an opportunity to speak truth to today's culture of death. 
What can we as Christians share with our culture of death? What is our message scripturally to this culture of death that we live in? Let me suggest three things. Number one, we can testify to our world today that life is precious. From the womb to the tomb, God values all human life. Look at what scripture says, Psalm 139, 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, Jeremiah says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Friends, a baby is not simply a clump of cells. A baby is a soul at conception imprinted with the image of God, a person that God knew before they were even formed physically. Life is precious. Unborn life is precious. The elderly, the elderly life is precious. Isaiah 46, 4, even to your old age, I am he. I am your God. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. You older folks here this morning, people like Kyle Smith over there, (laughs) passages like these should be of great encouragement to you today. God says, even to gray hairs, I'm your God. God says to you, I have made you, and I will bear you. And what that means is no matter how difficult it gets, and no matter how physically challenging it gets, and no matter how hard it gets, you have a creator God who made you, who loves you, who has written all your days in his book of life before one of them came to be. And he says, look at your life and your circumstances, even in your old age, are not an accident, and I will bear you up. I will carry you because life is precious to God from the womb to the tomb. The second message we can declare to our culture of death is that life is God's. Life belongs to God. Look at Revelation 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is the creator. God is sovereign over life. Acts 17, 24, and 25. The Apostle Paul, God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. God is the giver of life. God is the sustainer of life. 1 Samuel 2, 6. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to shale the place of the dead and he raises up. In other words, God is sovereign over life and sovereign over death. Ezekiel 18.4, which I don't have a slide for, says, Behold, all souls are mine. Friends, God is sovereign over all of life. And because he is the sovereign creator, he alone has the right to determine when a person's life comes to an end. That's not for us to determine. That's the sovereign privilege of our creator God. And no one has the right to usurp our creator's authority in that matter. 
The third thing that we can declare to our culture of death is that life is meaningful. Friends, every single one of your lives, no matter what challenges you face, no matter what disability you carry, no matter how old you are or how infirm you are, every single one of our lives has meaning. Why? Because all people were created for one primary purpose, and that is to worship and bring glory to God. Psalm 100, verse 5. 1 through 5 says this, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 150, verse 6 says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Friends, every living human being is a potential worshiper of God. To take a human life is to rob God of a potential worshiper. It's to steal from him one who might live for his glory. And we have no right to do so. And so, friends, as God's people, we are called to testify to these three truths. Life is precious. Life is God's. Life is meaningful. But you see, there's one more way in which the sixth commandment speaks to us. You see, this culture of death that plagues us, it's not just an issue out there. It's also an issue in here. And this leads me to point number three this morning. You shall not murder. It's also a command for my times. See, friends, I have an admission to make to you this morning. I'm a murderer. When I was in seventh grade, it was a Friday afternoon. School was just let out, middle of the winter. My buddies and I were waiting for the bus to come pick us up outside of Central Middle School. We were throwing snowballs at the car on the freeway down below at the bottom of the hill of our school. My science teacher, Mr. Bourne, he saw us throwing snowballs. He came running out, yelling at us, drug us into the principal's office, and gave us Saturday morning detention. Are you kidding me? You're going to make me come back into school on a Saturday morning and spend half my Saturday, half my weekend in school? Oh, I was furious. I hated him for it. I went home. I found my yearbook from the previous year. I pulled it off my shelf. I opened it to the page of the science faculty, and I took a pen, and I scribbled out all over. I scratched out Mr. Bourne's face. I hated him, and I wanted him dead. I had murder in my heart. See, friends, the sixth commandment isn't just about physically taking another person's life. It's also about what Calvin called murder of the heart, something that every single one of us here is guilty of. And when Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago, he deepened and transformed our understanding of this sixth commandment by sharing with us God's true intention for it. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus' disciple John echoing this teaching in 1 John 3. John tells us everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. The problem for murderers is we see in Revelation chapter 21 that murderers do not inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, murderers, John tells us, end up in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, forever separated from God. Oh, friends, what a grave error to fall into. Murder of the heart. And to be guilty of this crime, God's word says, is to face an eternity separated from God in hell. Are you guilty this morning? Have you hated your brother? Have you cursed your neighbor? If so, the Bible says you stand condemned. And yet here is where the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ once again makes all the difference. See, Jesus came and provided us amazing grace, a way of salvation. He made a way for us to be forgiven of this grave error that condemns us. He made a way for us to be free. John 3.16, that classic gospel declaration, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, Jesus came to this world 2,000 years ago for murderers. Not only people who had physically murdered another human being, but for those who have committed murder in our hearts. Both are equally guilty in the eyes of a holy God. But God gave his son. What does that mean? He gave him as a substitutionary sacrifice for us. The perfect spotless lamb of God. The one who knew no sin, who became sin for us, so that he could be our substitute. Isaiah 53, 7 through 9 tells us why Jesus is a sufficient substitute for us. Isaiah tells us he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Why is Jesus our perfect substitute? It's because Jesus is the only person who ever kept the sixth commandment faithfully. Jesus is the only one who never hated, who never cursed, who never acted out in violence towards another. And because of that, he is God's substitute for our sins. He lived the life that none of us could live so that he could go to the cross as the perfect lamb of God and shed his blood, paying our penalty and applying his blood, his amazing grace to our dark and murderous hearts so that we could have a right relationship with our creator. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Friends, are you a murderer? There may be some among us this morning who have wrongfully taken an innocent human life. Maybe premeditated murder. Maybe manslaughter. Certainly all of us, if we're being honest, have committed murder in our hearts. But the good news this morning is that God has made a way for us to be forgiven. 1 John 1.9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, even our murderous hearts. Friends, will you humble yourself before Jesus and throw yourself at the feet of his mercy and experience his amazing grace? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you have made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. Lord, you have given us this command, you shall not murder, and it's a command that on its face seems so easy, but when we really understand the depth of what you're calling us to here, we recognize there's nothing easy about it. We've all committed hatred, we've all have cursed out another person. We've all committed murder in our hearts. We are all guilty before you. And Lord, in our guilt, we deserve judgment. But because of your great love and your amazing grace, you have made a way through your son, Jesus Christ, for us to be saved. And we are so grateful. And Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who has never humbled their heart before you, if there's somebody here this morning who has a dark and blackened heart, a murderous heart. I pray that even here right now, they might cry out to you and say, Jesus, please forgive me. I need your amazing grace. And Lord, you will do your work in their life because you are a great and faithful God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.